1741, a man named Charles Jennings compiled a set of scripture texts and sent them to the greatest known composer in England at the time in the hopes that Handel would set those texts to music. And a mere 24 days later, Handel produced one of the greatest oratorios the world has ever heard. But apparently, Charles Jennings was a bit disappointed. He scribbled a note to a friend explaining that he thought that Handel's Messiah was pretty good, but it could have been better. And he was a little bit miffed that Handel didn't take him up on some of the suggestions he made for how the composition could be improved, which just goes to show you can never please everybody. But to mark the return of Central's annual performance of Handel's Messiah, which took place last night, we have decided to dedicate this Advent season to a closer examination of those scripture texts which tell the story and which made Handel's Messiah so famous. We began by considering the opening lines from Isaiah 40 that speak of God's comfort. And then we turn to the words of warning from Haggai and Malachi. And today I'd like us to focus on the dramatic scene when the prophet Isaiah announces some rather surprising news. And so today, during our time together, I'd like us to consider three things. What is this surprising news? Two, why do we need to hear it? And three, how does it change us? So I will be reading select passages from Isaiah 7, Matthew 1, Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 60. And in honor of Handel, I'll be reading the King James Version today. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the words of Scripture are never limited to one single application. And for that reason, we could compare the recurring relevance of the words of Scripture in every generation to skipping stones. Have you ever skipped stones? If you take a flat rock and skim it over a lake, when it first touches the water, the stone does not sink, which is what you would expect given the laws of gravity, but rather it rises and will touch the water in a variety of places because of the energy it carries as it spins. And along similar lines, the words of Scripture never touch down in just one place, but rather they carry multiple layers of meaning. And that's especially true when it comes to the words of the Old Testament and the prophet Isaiah in particular. Now, the prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ. And in chapter 7, verse 14, he famously issues these words to King Ahaz, the king of Judah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Isaiah's words meant one thing in their immediate context, but the promises of Isaiah are so extravagant that they couldn't possibly be fulfilled within his lifetime. They point to an even greater fulfillment. You see, long ago, God had promised that he would make King David, the greatest king of Israel, a dynasty, the house of David. And he promises that he will establish David's throne forever. But centuries later, the prophet Isaiah comes along and says that the house of David is going to come crashing down and God's people are going to be carried away into exile because of their unfaithfulness. But before it ever happens, Isaiah offers these words of comfort from Isaiah 40, promising that God will forgive his people of their sin and bring them home. But how? Why? Is it because they've served 50, 60, 70 years in exile and therefore they've paid off their debt? No. Isaiah will go on to explain that that God will raise up a mysterious figure whom he simply refers to as a servant. And this servant of the Lord will take upon himself the full weight of all the sin and evil that human beings have perpetrated against one another in order to bear it away. But as the centuries unfold, no one had fulfilled this promise of that wonderful child who would be born to a virgin or the prophecy of this sin-bearing, suffering servant. And so the people were still waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. And it's in the midst of that hope and expectation that Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary. Now, of course, there are many, both then and now, who would say, well, the story's been made up. It's just a work of fiction. And that, of course, is always possible. But we need to consider the fact that there were some very strange events that attended the birth of Jesus. Now, Matthew and Luke are the two gospel writers that recount the birth of Jesus. And both of them insist that although Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, he was not the biological father of Jesus, but rather Jesus was born as a result of the direct action of God. But that, of course, is a little hard to believe. So imagine that you're Joseph. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Imagine that you are engaged to be married and your fiance comes to you one day and says that she's pregnant. Well, you know that you are not the father. This is not your child. And so you respond by saying, well, who's the dad? And she says, look, there isn't another man. God is the father. You would probably say, sorry, sweetie, but I know how babies are made. It's a little hard to believe, and that's why many have argued that this story of the virgin birth, or perhaps more properly, the virgin conception of Jesus, is nothing more than a work of fiction. Perhaps it was an attempt to mimic some of the pagan legends of gods having intercourse with women and producing godlike men. Or perhaps it's all just a big misunderstanding based on Isaiah's words, because it is true that in the original Hebrew, the word that Isaiah uses for virgin 
could also be translated in some particular context as simply a young woman of marriageable age. So maybe it was all just a big mistake. But if you pay close attention to the details, it's actually not so easy to explain away the virgin conception of Jesus. So one scholar puts it like this. His name is Michael Green. He writes, The trouble is that the sober New Testament accounts of the Annunciation to Mary, that she would have a child who would be known as God's son, have nothing in common with the pre-Christian myths of intercourse between bearded gods and nubile young women. The gospel writers were also better aware than we of the ambiguity of Isaiah's word virgin and would be most unlikely to build a case on that one word and then get it wrong. And when we look more closely, we find that all the evidence suggests that there was something different about the birth of Jesus. For example, it's rather striking that Jesus's opponents accused him of being an illegitimate child from the very start. You see this in Mark chapter six, verse three. People from Jesus' own hometown refuse to accept his identity. And they say to one another, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, that should stand out to you. Remember, this is a very traditional Jewish culture. They were living in a patriarchal society. And you would not refer to someone by naming their mother if you knew who the father was. And yet they refer to Jesus as the carpenter, the son of Mary. Or on another occasion, in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus' critics claim, we are not illegitimate children, which was to suggest that they thought he was. Or in the very next chapter, John chapter 9, verse 29, they try to put Jesus down by saying, as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now think about children on a playground when they make fun of one another and tease one another, usually they try to grasp onto some element of truth because that's where things are gonna hurt. And so it seems to me that it's rather striking that Jesus' paternity was questioned from the very start. Everyone knew that Joseph was not his biological father, although he was his legal father. And yet, here's the thing, despite the abuse and criticism that Jesus receives, he never regards this fact as cause for embarrassment or shame. So in an odd sort of way, the, the charge of illegitimacy may actually lend some support to the idea that Jesus really was conceived of the Virgin Mary. So all the evidence suggests that there was something highly unusual about the birth of Jesus. And so the surprising news of Advent is, believe it or not, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that God really has come to us as a human being in the person of Jesus. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. But if that is the surprising news of Advent, why do we need to hear it? Well, if you were at our Messiah concert last night, you may have heard me say that Charles Jennings had compiled scripture texts for Handel previous to the writing of Messiah. But when he sent these texts to Handel, he inscribed the libretto with a line from Virgil, let us sing of greater things. This libretto was special. But to understand why, you need to know something about the world in which Jennings and Handel lived. It was the beginning of the modern age. The Enlightenment was now in full swing. Technology was all the rage. 
People felt like they had stepped out of the dark ages of religion and superstition into the bright light of reason and rationality. And therefore, scientific inquiry was considered to be the final arbiter of truth. And all talk of miracles was ruled out as impossible from the very start. Now, there may have been some people who continued to believe that there was a supernatural being behind the universe, like a deist clockmaker who perhaps created the world and set it in motion, but then otherwise left it alone. But there were fewer and fewer people who believed that there was a personal God who is actively involved in human affairs. And as far as humans were concerned, well, human beings were considered as basically good. People believed that human beings had the ability to perfect themselves and to improve their society, relying on nothing more than their own power and ingenuity. And for that reason, talk about being in bondage to sin and to death just sounded a little overblown. Now, the average person on the street and increasing number of people within the churches believe that human beings had grown up and we simply did not need the God hypothesis anymore. Now, this should sound familiar to us because this is the world in which we continue to live in today. And that's precisely why Jennings and Handel wrote Messiah. They wanted to wake people up to the reality of God and to our need for a Messiah. And that is, at least in part, why they selected these lines from Isaiah chapter 40. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. See, Isaiah is saying that the greatest news that the world has ever heard has now been unveiled. God himself has come to us. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid to lift up our voices, to get up on the mountain and let everyone know, behold your God. God has come to you in the most unexpected of ways. He's come to you as a helpless baby. But do you hear that expression, good tidings? O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion. That expression, good tidings or good news, is the same English word, gospel, which reminds us that the heart of the Christian message is not good advice, it's good news. Now, think about the difference. If I were to sit across the table from you and say, I've got some really good advice for you, what are you expecting me to say? You're expecting that I'm going to tell you something that you need to do. Now, it very well may be good for you. This might be good advice. It might benefit you in some way. But the onus is on you to do it. And there is, of course, a sort of take it or leave it quality to advice. It may be nothing more than my own subjective opinion. But if, on the other hand, I sat across the table from you and I said, listen, I have some really, really good news. Well, that creates an altogether different expectation. You're not expecting me to tell you to do something. You're expecting me to tell you something that has happened. And if this is good news, it means that something has happened that fundamentally changes your situation for the better. And you had nothing to do with it. Now, you might need to respond to it in some way. But the emphasis is not on what you must do, but what has been done. And you see, I think the problem is that most people assume that Christianity is merely good advice. 
It's advice about how you can maximize your potential or become the best version of yourself. Or perhaps the advice of Christianity is that it prescribes a particular way to live or to pray or to be a better Christian. And if you take this advice, if you follow these steps, well, then God is going to bless you and your life is going to go well. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity does involve some pretty helpful advice about how to live, but at its core, the gospel is not advice about what you need to do for God, but rather it's news, it's an announcement of what God has done for you by his grace. And that fundamentally changes your situation. Or here's another way to think about it. I think people are confused about the the nature, the identity of Jesus. Some people think that Jesus is nothing more than a religious guru who offers a new path of spirituality. Or perhaps Jesus is a great moral teacher who provides new ethical instruction. Or maybe Jesus is a social activist who provides a, a new structure to human affairs. Now, of course, Jesus has something to say about all these things. He has something to say about spirituality and ethics and social life. But Jesus is not, first and foremost, a guru, a teacher, or an activist. No, Jesus is a savior. That is who he is. That is what he has come to do. But you see, here's the problem. Not unlike people in Handel's day, we tend to be very, very optimistic about human perfectibility. We tend to think that we don't need God because we assume that if we work a little more or try a little harder, we can perfect ourselves and we can solve the most intractable problems that we face within our broader society. But the Bible would suggest that that optimism, that view of human perfectibility is naive. Because if we think that we can perfect ourselves or our society, we're, we're forgetting this little teeny tiny thing called human nature. Have you met a human being? Human beings are capable of extravagant love, extraordinary generosity, heroic sacrifice. And yet at the very same time, every single human being carries within his or her own heart this little defect which prevents even the best of us from thinking outside of ourselves. Even the best of us sometimes think and act and speak in ways that simply serve our own self-interest. And the Bible has a word for that. You know what it's called? It's called sin. So the Bible is much more realistic because it emphasizes human fallibility rather than human perfectibility you're never going to be able to perfect yourself or your society, no matter how hard you try, because we carry that defect within us. And no matter how much effort you spend trying to improve yourself or to extend your life, you're never going to be able to escape the reality of death. And no matter how much collective progress we make as a society, There is actually no guarantee that any of our efforts will last or that it will result in the end in less war, less suffering, less injustice. Apart from God, there is absolutely no reason to hope in the ultimate triumph of justice. 
which is why one philosopher says it is impossible, it is impossible for a lucid atheist to avoid despair. See, the Bible tries to get us in touch with reality and it emphasizes not human perfectibility but human fallibility and that is why we need Jesus who is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior who does for us what we could never do for ourselves because the good news of the gospel is that God has broken into our world in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect sinless life, who died a substitutionary sacrificial death and who rose again bodily, powerfully in order to usher in a new creation. Which means that the gospel offers us not less than forgiveness but so much more. By sheer grace, God promises not only to reconcile you in relationship to God and to one another but to bring about a whole new heaven and earth where everything that had once gone wrong will be made right. That is the good news. Those are the good tidings that God brings to us at Advent. But if that is the surprising news and why we need it, what difference does it make? Well, the story is told that a man named Lord Canuel heard one of the early performances of Handel's Messiah and then he paid Handel a compliment for the fine entertainment that Messiah had provided its audience. To which Handel replied by saying, oh, I should be very, very sorry if I only entertained them. I wish to make them better. I wish to make them better. You see, the point of this surprising news is to change us. And I would suggest that if we take this news into our heart and into our life, it will change us dramatically, profoundly. Because it will produce faith, love, and hope. If we take this news into our heart and into our life, it will produce a confident faith, an all-embracing love, and a bold hope. See, first of all, this news produces a confident faith. Notice what this news tells us about God. The creator God who made the heavens and the earth will not use force to gain entry into our lives. Though he's the God of the universe, he doesn't come to us in power and strength as a conquering hero. No, he comes to us in humility and weakness as a helpless baby. And you know what? That is the way in which God continues to come. God will not use force to gain entry into your life. And so if we are going to know this God, we have to receive him. And the way in which we receive him is the same way that Mary did. He didn't force himself upon Mary. What does Mary say? I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. The way in which we receive him is by faith, by putting our trust in him. And that's the purpose of this surprising news. I would suggest that is the purpose of all of the scriptures. The purpose of the scriptures is to point us to Jesus. Not merely so that we might know a few things about him or understand him or even admire him, but rather so that we might come to believe and trust that he really is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the savior of the whole world. The problem is that many people are confused about the nature of faith. People think of faith as a blind leap in the dark and therefore it's incompatible with reason. 
But no, true faith is never unreasonable if the object of your faith is trustworthy. Think about all of our human relationships. We only trust people if they prove themselves trustworthy, and so it is with God. As we read the scriptures, we may come to see that they provide us with evidence of who Jesus is and what he's done that is compelling. And when we first start reading the Bible, we don't have to believe anything in particular about what kind of book it is. We can simply read it like any other book from the ancient world that describes a particular people's encounter with God. And especially, it tells us about this person, Jesus. It offers us a record of his life and and his teaching. And there's no reason to believe that the authors of the scriptures were any less honest than anyone else. But as we read the scriptures, as we expose ourselves to the story, we may feel its impact. And we may come to believe that we do trust what Jesus and others claim about him. And that is how God creates faith in us. You see, this is the purpose of the scriptures to evoke and to elicit our faith. And so the first purpose of this surprising news is to to change us by instilling within us a confident faith that is reasonable because the object of our faith is trustworthy. But secondly, if you take this news into your heart and into your life, it will create a all-embracing love Notice that the message of the gospel is that Jesus does not just come for you, but he comes for the world. Isaiah, in Isaiah 60, likens the the coming of Jesus to the rising of the sun over a city on the dawn of a new day. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah declares that Jesus will be the Savior, not just of his people, but of all people. Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. You see, Jesus is the desire of every nation, and therefore people from every nation will and have streamed to him. And therefore, Christmas is the end. Christmas is the absolute end of thinking that you are any better than anyone else. And why is that? Because Christianity is the only religion in the world that says that you cannot save yourself. It's the only religion in the world that offers good news rather than good advice. It's the only religion that tells you that there's nothing that you can add or contribute to your rescue. You can't climb your way up to God. God has to come down. He has to come down to you to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And so who is included in God's salvation? Well, a traditional moral person might say, the good are in and the bad are out. You gotta be good enough. Or a more liberal progressive person might say the tolerant are in and the bigoted are out. So you've got to be tolerant enough. But both of those would be good advice approaches to God. No, Christianity says the humble are in and the proud are out. The only thing that it could exclude you from experiencing God's salvation is yourself, your own pride, your refusal to accept it because his salvation is not just 
for one person, it's for all. And that is why Christmas puts an end to all disdain. You might think, well, I don't, I don't disdain anyone. But let's be a little bit more honest. Look deeper. You might just be better at covering it up than other people. But you see, if you call yourself a Christian, but you despise your next door neighbor, or you despise someone who belongs to a different political party or a different race or a different socioeconomic class, then you just don't get it. You have not heard or fully understood this surprising news because Jesus comes for everyone, left, right, black, white, rich, poor. And if you understand that you are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, then you do not have a leg to stand on to look down upon anybody else. Christianity produces an all-embracing love. But then finally, if you take this news into your heart and into your life, it will produce a bold hope. In Jesus Christ, the hope of the world has been disclosed. That is the greatest news that the world has ever heard, and that cannot, it cannot be kept to ourselves. It has to be shared. And when we share it with others, we give them the opportunity to discover the truth of which their lives are also a part. In Jesus Christ, the clue to human existence has been revealed. And that is why Isaiah says, get thee up. Get thee up into the high mountain. Declare the good tidings to Zion. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say, behold your God. That's what the children sang to us a moment ago. If we hear this good news, we have to share it. Go tell it on the mountain. And Jesus said much the same thing. Whatever he whispers to us in our ears, we must shout from the rooftops. It's the greatest news that we have ever heard or ever will receive. And we are called to give a reason for the hope that we have. But we must do so with both compassion as well as conviction. Now, it seems to me that there are some people who are alarmed by the rising number of people who identify themselves as nuns within our society. It may account for nearly 30% of our population today. Now, you might say, why would someone be alarmed of a rising number of women taking religious orders and wearing a black habit? But I'm not talking about nuns, N-U-N-S. I'm talking about the rise of nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People who do not identify with any religious tradition. They choose none of the above. But I don't see this as a threat. I see this as an opportunity. If you look a little more closely at the studies, there are some people within that 30% who are hardcore atheists or agnostics. But the vast majority of people who do not identify with any religion in particular simply do not know what they believe. And according to them, they would be very, very open to a conversation about faith. They would be very, very open to an invitation to attend church with you. If you would only open up your mouth and share. This past week, my wife Ashley and I were invited to go to our youngest daughter's second grade class to share the story of Christmas. And she goes to a rather secular, progressive school. And it became rather clear as we were making our presentation that many of the children were unfamiliar with the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Some of them seemed to have had grandparents who were probably practicing Christians, but 
much of this was new information. And that was also true of the teachers who were young themselves. And as we were explaining the story of Christmas and answering questions, you could see that all kinds of light bulbs were going off between the teachers. They're looking at one another with knowing looks, realizing that they're figuring things out that they'd never even learned before. And afterwards, they were positively gushing because they were so grateful for everything that they had learned in this 30-minute conversation designed for second graders about the Christian faith. And one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I never really understood why Christians always talked about Jesus rather than God. But now I understand that what you're telling me is that Christians believe that God entered our world and became a human being in the person of Jesus and therefore Jesus is God. And I said, that is exactly right. You see, we have an opportunity, if we would only take it, to share this good news with others. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to shout it from the rooftops. We have to get thee up onto the mountain and say, behold your God. If we take this surprising news of Advent into our heart and into our life, it will change us. It will produce a confident faith, an all-embracing love, and a bold hope. So go and tell it on the mountain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but you have entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray that you would help us to receive this good news by faith and by putting our trust in you. We pray that as a result, you would inculcate within us an all-embracing love and give us the boldness to confidently share this truth that we have found with others, that they too might find you to be the long-awaited Messiah. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.